tonight I wanted to take um, really what the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures teach us about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think there is some confusion uh, where some uh, people now confuse the rapture of the church with the second coming of Christ. And they are two, of course, distinctly different events. One takes place at the beginning of the, or before the rapture, uh, before the tribulation. The other takes place, of course, right at the end of the tribulation period. Um, So I'd like to just clarify that and I want to bring together all the scriptures because while we know what Revelation 19 probably tells us about the second coming, um, it's also a whole chapter in the book of Joel and uh, Zechariah has really two chapters also and when you bring all those scriptures together you get a very clear picture of what uh, Armageddon is all about, what is happening and who are involved in it. Well, this is uh, what the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples uh, just before his death. The disciples had asked Christ, what will be the sign of his coming and the end of the world? And they were asking, when will you assume your rightful position as king? Because that's what they were looking forward to the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, when he would reign. And they were asking him, well, what are the signs of thy coming? But the Lord said that before the start of his program to reclaim the world, there would be false Christ and there would also be world conflict. This is what he said in Matthew 24. Ye shall hear of wars... And rumours of war, see that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The context of that verse is after the rapture, up until the midpoint of the tribulation. Well, we know, uh, and it's interesting to note, (laughs) there'll be wars and rumours of wars. This map shows every conflict in the world from the year 1900 until 2000. In just a hundred years, it shows how much of the world has fulfilled that prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of almost 2,000 years prior to this. Today, it's estimated that 70.8 million in the world are displaced by global conflicts. This is preceding it. But then I should go back and say that first verse, uh, of course, referred to before the rapture of the church in the age in which we live. But then he said this, after the rapture takes place, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There shall be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in divers or different places. All these are the beginnings of sorrow. So he was saying that during the tribulation there will also be conflict. You know, despite the fact that, remember, when the Antichrist 
comes into view at the very start of the tribulation, he comes promising peace to a troubled world. Uh, But during the tribulation, the scripture reveals that in the first half, Antichrist will come into conflict with Egypt. Israel will be invaded by Russia and allied forces. But the greatest, of course, conflict that the world has ever known will be at the end of the tribulation. This is how the scripture describes this conflict. It convinces or commences with an invitation to the carrions of the earth to gather for an impending feast. This is what it says in Revelation 19, we read this, And I saw an angel, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Well, why and where are they gathering to? And what are they going to eat when they get there? You know, it was interesting that a number of years ago, uh, somebody stood up and said, the Lord's return must be getting closer uh, because the number of vultures is increasing in Israel. Now, you have to be careful what you take off the internet uh, because this invitation doesn't come until the very end of the tribulation. Uh, So they were seven years too early plus, so be careful what you read sometimes. Go back to the scriptures. Uh, They're the only ones that have the accurate timetable but that invitation will go out and why are they gathering well this is what it goes on to say that they may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and bond both small and great their prey will be the slain of the great armies that will gather for the greatest battle that the earth has ever known. The events that have led up uh, to this battle commenced seven years earlier. Natural, the first three and a half years of uh, the tribulation, uh, the world has endured natural disaster after natural disaster, one after another. We may talk about some of that tomorrow. Many of the trees and all grass has been destroyed. River waters have become undrinkable. Much sea life has died. And the oceans have claimed many ships. But now when the world thinks it has just about had enough, a world dictator enters the scene. Well, it's the beginning of what we would classify as Antichrist kingdom. In Daniel 11, it tells us this, that he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall be able to help him. The midpoint of the tribulation, Antichrist establishes his rule in the Middle East and makes his headquarters Jerusalem. But we're also told that it signals the beginning of his ultimate end. God just doesn't leave half of the story because those three and a half years 
will bring to a conclusion after that the life of the Antichrist. Well, his power. We know that power was given him. He doesn't assume this power. It's given to him by God. And uh, that's a very interesting point to note. But power was given him over all kindred, tongues, nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. We'll be talking a little bit about uh, towards a global world uh, tomorrow morning at our service. He will have absolute power over the world. And what's the source of his power? Well, we read in Revelation 13 that the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast who is able to make more with him? The source of his power comes from Satan himself. He's been identified in chapter 13 as the beast. He will assume the position not only of world ruler, but he will take the position of God and his false prophet will build that image of him and cause all to worship him as God. Well, but you know, the Lord Jesus Christ has the ultimate power over life and death. I love this scripture from John because we read in the earlier part of this chapter that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to give life unto those that love him, eternal life. But we don't often read the end of that chapter because John says this, For the Father judgeth no man, but he hath committed all judgment unto the Son. For as the Father have life in himself, so is he given to the Son to have life in himself, hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. God has committed into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ the judgment of this world. And remember, life goes beyond the physical because there is an eternal life and death to be discovered as well. Well, let's go back to the middle of the book of Revelation. And we read this statement. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. There are three series of judgments in the tribulation. The first set of seven are the opening of the seals by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he opens each seal, a judgment falls in the first half of the tribulation. When the seventh seal is opened, it introduces us to seven trumpet judgments. And those trumpet judgments, again, uh, each one indicates a judgment on the earth. All of those take place in the first half of the tribulation. But in the second half of the tribulation, you have what's called the vile or bowl judgments. And as each bowl is poured out upon the earth, it predominantly judges Antichrist's kingdom. And that's where the target of most of it is. But when you come to the sixth vial or bowl, you read this. 
and the, uh, it poured out upon the great river Euphrates and, that, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. You know, when you study Bible geography and history, the Euphrates is really the divide between east and west. And uh, much of biblical measurement is taken from the river Euphrates. It's one of the oldest rivers, of course, in the world. And uh, as this judgment is poured out, that river is dried up to facilitate the movement of a vast army from the east to Israel to fight with the armies of the Antichrist for world supremacy. And then we read this. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, who is Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, who is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, who is the Antichrist, uh, second in charge. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These armies will think they're coming to fight against the Antichrist, but in the background, these spirits have been sent out by God to stir up the nations for conflict. Uh, We know that that is true. And they instruct these demonic beings to go and stir up the world to gather them this final conflict. And then we read in Revelation that he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Uh, The word Armageddon, if you're not aware of it, means the Mount of Megiddo. And uh, Megiddo was an ancient Canaanite city that lay on the southern side of the Jezreel Valley. It dates back, as I said, to the time of the Canaanites. Uh, This is where it sits. Uh, You know, that valley is one of the most uh, conflict-ridden valleys in the nation of Israel. If you read your Old Testament scriptures, you'll read that God gave Deborah and Barak a great victory over the Canaanites there. If you remember what happened... Uh, they were gathered there to fight the Canaanites and the Canaanites had what? Chariots with steel wheels. And as they came into the valley, Barak was sitting up on the other side near Mount Tobah. And uh, as he sat there, God sent a flood or a heavy rain and it flooded the Kishon River, which doesn't show there, but uh, the Kishon is in the northern part of that uh, river, uh, of that valley, and they bogged all their chariots, iron chariots in the bog, and uh, Barak came down and destroyed the Canaanites. You know, the Harrod Valley is at the other end, near Mount Gilboa, and that's where Gideon had his great victory over the Midianites. And then, uh, a day, uh, then on Mount Gilboa, of course, what happened on Mount Gilboa? Let's... Let's get you thinking. Saul committed suicide on Mount Gilboa 
after being pursued by the Philistines. And remember, if you remember your scriptures, uh, the mountain was cursed by David, um, but nothing grow on it from that day forward. 1799, somebody else had a great battle in that valley, and that was Napoleon. And if you know anything about Napoleon's history, he had had a conflict down in Egypt with the British, and the Turks were involved there, and he came up with an army, and he met a Turkish army in that battle. And there were two battles, one at Nazareth and one at Mount Tabor, uh, so, and he won those battles, turned the Turks back to Turkey. It is a valley that has known conflict from the very start of history. Well, it will be the gathering place. We seem to assume that all the fighting will take place in that valley. And while it's a pretty good valley, um, it's not big enough to hold all the armies of the world in. And we'll see in a moment that all Israel will be involved in the conflict at the Battle of Armageddon. This is what Joel says about it. He says this. For in Joel chapter 3, if you want to go back and read about it, is all about the Battle of Armageddon. Joel chapter 2 is about the conflict between Russia and its allies and Israel. Joel chapter 1 is no battle at all. It's about a massive locust invasion on the nation of Israel. We don't know when it occurred, uh, but God uses it, as, uses it as a object lesson to invading armies that come against the nation of Israel. And this is what Joel wrote in chapter 3. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my nat land. Well, where does the valley of Jehoshaphat lie? It's believed that it lies here. And uh, the name means the Lord judges. And for hundreds of years, it's been identified as the valley that lies between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Today, that valley is a burial ground for both Jewish and Muslim dead. But that's what it is there today. And then Joel goes on to say this, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. So although the Satan stirs up the kings of the east, it's all under the control of God. And this is what we have to remember. Nothing happens in this world without God having a hand in it. We may not always agree or may not always see the significance of what happens in the world, 
But as a Christian, if I believe that he knows all about my life and controls it, then I must believe that he knows what's happening in the world and it's all under his control. And we should never lose sight of that because it's an important thing to remember. He's the one pulling the strings in order to bring these people to the final battle to end Satan's power over the people of the earth. And here the invitation is to prepare their their weapons ready for warfare. And then he says this, Assemble yourselves, come all ye heathen, gather yourselves together round about, thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord, let the heathen be wakened, come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. The valley of Jehoshaphat, of course, will be where Christ's final judgment on Antichrist's kingdom will take place because remember, he is now situated in that rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. You know, the scriptures tell us that it will be on the Mount of Olives that the feet of Christ will first touch down at his second coming. You know, speaking of that day, Zephaniah also wrote about it. He said, my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. You know, God has allowed Satan enough rope, but now it's time to rein that rope in. The world has seen the mighty power of God And twice during the tribulation, people have known where the judgments are coming from, but they've cursed God instead of turning to God. That's how hard the hearts of people will be during the tribulation. They've cursed him. And now that harvest will be reaped. Joel says, put it ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, come Get you down, for the press is full and the fats overflow. So he's picturing the nations as being in a huge wine press and the evilness of the nations is overflowing that vat. It's time to tread in judgment those that are in that situation. And he says, for their wickedness is great, multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So Joel pictures this crop that's ready, is ripe for harvest and ready to be crushed. Uh, But of course the harvest to be reaped is not one to be enjoyed uh, but the harvest of wickedness. The book of Revelation puts it this way. I looked in Revelation 14 and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the temple, that is the temple of God, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap 
for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. You know, the world continues to move in wickedness before God. Uh, I don't have to announce all of the things that we see around us every day that show how wicked our world has become and how the majority of our world is really anti-God. But now it's God's turn to send his son out and people will reap that wickedness that has been sown in the world. He sees Christ in all his glory, John does in this passage, and that angel appears from the presence of God and instructs Christ to begin reaping the world and its wickedness. Well, this is how he pictures the world. In verse 14 he says, some uh, fruit is overripe and withered. You know, you don't gather that normally to put it in the press because you get nothing out of it. Uh, But in verse uh, 18 he says, some fruit is fully grown and ripe uh, to gather but all are put into the winepress of the wrath of God. So it's not just the wickedness of that day, but it's the wickedness of days past. That that fruit has been ripe to harvest for a while, uh, but it's ready to be gathered and it will be put to the press to be crushed and indeed destroyed. It's sin past and present that's going to be judged. Well, following the seventh bowl that is poured out upon Antichrist's kingdom, we read this. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Every island fled away, the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So in the world just prior to the return of Jesus Christ for that great battle, there are activities that shake the whole world. It's the greatest earthquake the world has ever experienced. Now it's interesting because I wonder how many of you know the biggest earthquake that the world has ever known since records have been taken. Well, I thought I'd better look it up because I can't preach about something I don't have knowledge about. In May 22nd, in 1960, in southern Chile, there was an earthquake that measured 9.5 on the Richter scale. Uh, Other Earthquakes in recorded history may have been larger. However, this is the largest that has occurred since accurate estimates became possible since the 1900s. As a result of that earthquake, two million people were left homeless, uh, with most damage coming from tsunamis that went as far away as the Philippines. It was a terrible period. This is how you measure an earthquake. It gives you the picture of the damage large earthquakes can cause. 
that God said the earthquake that occurs in the tribulation will be greater than anything on that chart. Look what the maximum damage does there. It destroys huge amounts of buildings and property. Well, (coughs) hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent. Many years ago, I had my car parked at Sydney Airport while travelling and came back to find that a hailstorm had hit Sydney and I can tell you my car didn't look too good. I think every panel on the car was damaged. Those uh, hailstones were about the size of tennis balls. Um, So can anybody have any idea of how big a hailstone of a talent is? Interesting, isn't it? Cubic foot, one cubic foot of water weighs 62 pounds. Right. Well, you're getting close, so it's half a cubic foot. They weigh about 35 kilos of talent in Bible measurements. Now, if you can imagine that falling on mankind, it will be rather large. But remember, they don't turn to God because of it. They curse God because of it. Well, just prior to the Battle of Armageddon, we read this also in Joel. The sun and moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. As that battle begins to, how to say, come together, the earth has a dark shadow cast over it. And then we read this in Zechariah. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem and the city shall be taken. So which city are they talking about? That's Jerusalem. And the women shall be taken and the houses rifled, the women ravaged. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So while the invitation is to come to Armageddon, it's obvious that the conflict will spread all over the land of Israel. This verse and others show that the conflict will embrace the whole land of Israel. But when the conflict threatens the surviving Jews, Christ appears to save the nation and defeat those uh, armies. It tells us in the scripture these feet will stand in that day. Uh, Well, this is what we read first. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. He is the faithful one. Well, what's faithful about the Lord? He always keeps his promises. And there's been a promise in the scriptures that he will come to deliver his people. It's part of his covenant with Israel because I believe Israel by this point have turned to the Lord and are saved. But note, Christ has left heaven to judge the beast and make war with him and his reign of terror is about to cease. This is how Joel pictures it. The Lord shall roar out of Zion 
utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. He will save the remnant of his people still in Jerusalem. Revelation gives us this picture. Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. I do not know how every person in the world will see Christ at his second coming, but I believe the scriptures. Somehow there will be signs in the heavens that show the world that Christ has come to judge the world because of their sin. Then we read this, his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The piercing eye speaks of judgment of sin that has evaluated the events and found them lacking. The many crowns speaks of his right to rule over all nations, not just the nation of Israel. He will rule over all nations. The unknown name is is a little bit more puzzling, uh, but it may be a name that is revealed at his second coming. Or it could be, you know, those who practiced magic in John's day believed that to know a name gave power over him whose name it was. Uh, But it could be that no one knew his name and no one had power over Christ. We don't know exactly, uh, but we just uh, have to trust. We don't always understand every part of the scriptures. And then we read this, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen white, And clean. When Christ returns, he'll be accompanied by the heavenly hosts and, of course, the church of Jesus Christ, the raptured church. And then we read this Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, that vast army that comes with him will not have to lift one hand to aid him. When Christ deals with sin and with the Antichrist and those that have rejected him, he will deal with it by himself. The world will see the wrath of God poured out on a world that crucified his son and for centuries have trodden his name underfoot. This will be his vindication of his death. Well, how are they destroyed? Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. He said, The Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth, shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is how... Zechariah saw it. That day, 
shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And then we read this. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand before his feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. He will send a plague on them which will just literally consume that great army as it stands before him. He will send a plague that will melt or rot away parts of their bodies. Verse uh, 15 of this same chapter tells us that the animals that will be with him and with them on that great day will suffer the same fate. Um, Some of you might puzzle uh, why there are horses (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, because today, what's the great land weapon that is used today? Planes, tanks, armoured carriers. But remember, during the tribulation, and we'll talk a little about this tomorrow, during the tribulation there will be tremendous... Um, judgments fall upon the world and it could be and I only give you this as a speculation uh, that you won't be able to shift many of those things that require fuel because it just won't be available I uh, have a feeling that we'll go back to very primitive warfare in those days because the world will be a different world to what we know today. But we'll talk a bit about that tomorrow. But then we read this also. It shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbour, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbour. So what? He'll send confusion amongst those armies that have gathered together. You've got Antichrist forces, you've got all those kings from the east. They've all come together to fight for world supremacy. And the scripture tells us God will send confusion and they'll be fighting each other as well. But Revelation gives us a picture. It says this, And the winepress was trodden without the city, Blood came out of the winepress, even under the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Uh, so, if you want to put furlongs into kilometres, it's about 280 kilometres. Uh, the length of Israel is around 320 kilometres. So, the conflict will spread over most of the land. And the horses will trample the battlefield and the blood will splash as high as the horses' bridles. I'm not sure it will rise to the horses' bridles. That's a pretty far 
how would I say, interpretation. But I believe that it will be so much, it will splatter. And then we read this. And the beast was taken, with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So we started our pitch, our story off with that invitation in Revelation for the carrions of the earth to gather. And that's what they will feed upon. The Antichrist survives the conflict <coughs> that both he and his false prophet are cast into hell. And this is the reason why, as I said, uh, that invitation to those fowls is given. Remember, they will clear the earth of the dead prior to the commencement of the, lament, sorry, the millennial kingdom. You know, this is a psalm, psalm 2, which I love to read sometimes. It tells us this, that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But the scripture says this, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If you remember and know a little about, about Egyptian history, if Pharaoh was upset with a nation, he would call for his people to bring him a pot and he would say that pot represents my the nation that's rebelling against me and he would smash it to the ground as a picture of what he would do with that nation. It's the same picture here. He'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun. Interesting, isn't it? Remember, in Eastern culture, uh, to kiss the sun is to show respect to him. Uh, some cultures still have that today. So he's saying, show respect and honour to Christ, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. God gives a warning to those who will not submit to the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those armies will suffer that fate. Well, how do you escape God's judgment? And that's the important part, isn't it? We won't be here, of course, to see all this. We may be observers from heaven of what's going on, but I'm not sure even that will be too busy and too much involved in the things of heaven. But there has to be a way of escape. And sadly today, there may be, if the Lord were to come tomorrow, we were taken to be with him, 
There could be, there'll be people and friends we know who will enter into the tribulation and may indeed enter into these things that are going to come upon the earth. You know, John 3.16 is a lovely verse. He so loved the world that he gave. Whosoever, whoever wants to, can take that step of faith, not perish but have everlasting life. Well, if you remember that the first coming of Christ was not for judgment, the first coming of Christ was for salvation. Remember when he preached in the temple, quoted from Isaiah, he quoted only a half of the verse that he'd come for salvation. The second part of the verse was about vengeance. His first coming was never about vengeance. It was about love. Well, I trust that everybody here knows the Lord. I trust those that are listening have trusted the Lord as their saviour. I remember the day I did it, and it's a long time ago now, some 64 years, something like that, back there in 1959 at the Billy Graham Crusade. I made that decision to follow Christ and I have not regretted one day of it ever since. And I trust that all of you are trusting the Lord and more than that, you're not regretting it. You know, our friends cut Lois and I off a little bit at church because we suddenly had a new life and we didn't want to go to the places they wanted to go to. Sometimes it costs a little to be a Christian, but don't let your friends talk you out of it. That's the biggest issue. Have no regrets because the Lord has been so gracious to us ever since. It's been a blessing to know the Lord all of those years and uh, we thank him every morning for indeed his salvation because the scripture tells us he that believeth is not condemned but he that believeth is not is con believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten son of god and this is the condemnation that light came into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And that's true of this world in which we live. People revel in sin today. And they think and they glorify it, sadly. Uh, but God's judgment can be avoided. Believe in Christ. But man would rather live in darkness, sadly. And say so they condemn themselves to a Christless eternity. And the ultimate judgment of God and that's what um, the battle of Armageddon is. It's the final judgment of God against a sinful world. The question we have to ask is have you trusted Christ? It's the most important question that you can ask yourself or a friend can ask you or you can ask a friend have you trusted Christ as your saviour? And then, of course, that gives you that great opportunity to share the word of God with them. So I trust you now understand all about the Battle of Armageddon. You were probably all aware of it 
from Revelation 19. Uh, but there's a huge lead up to that through the scriptures and they confirm why and how that great battle will take place. Thank you.